Welcome to what I think is going to be a very special episode of the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Here with me also is my good friend, Baron Soka. We're going to be talking today about one of the great issues of our time. We are in the middle of a great acceleration in the advance of technology. With that acceleration has come a rapid uptick in the rate at which evolving forms of information flow through and shape our culture and society. One of the people thinking most deeply about this phenomenon is Rene Daresta, our guest today. Rene is the technical research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. In lieu of a longer biography, uh, I'm gonna introduce Rene through her work. It is such amazing stuff that she does and I follow it closely. And the rest of you who are interested in this kind of uh, area should as well. And it also gives me a chance to introduce three of my favorite essays of hers. They are a good framework for our discussion because they get into the past and the present and the future of our big dive into, uh, some call it the Anthropocene, you know, this acceleration that I've, I've mentioned. The first is called Mediating Consent. It's available at Ribbon Farm. And it, it starts us back really 500 years ago at the rise of the printing press and the appearance of the vernacular Bible. And it gets into the disruption that that past advance in information technology caused. And it's good to remember that we're not the first to be experiencing uh, such an event. It then gets into the, the more the present and the rise and the explosion of geographically transcendent pseudo-realities. Um, what that really means is people with niche interests, uh, including things like conspiracy theories, can now find each other online and connect and coalesce and, and advance their interests, um, sometimes in ways that are detrimental to society as a whole. Next, second article, uh, the supply of disinformation will soon be infinite. And that is the, uh, in the Atlantic. And it's a great article on the coming of generative text, AI generated writing. And what is that going to do to um, our info information ecosystem? I mean, as the article discusses, for one thing, it is going to be a powerful tool uh, for those who'd like to advance disinformation. And then finally, third, how to stop misinformation before it gets started. Uh, and that's available in Wired. And that takes us into uh, also the near future, but looks in more at how are we maybe going to solve or at least get a handle on some of the problems of misinformation and disinformation. Um, and it, it is uh, particularly focused on ways to increase friction in the flow of information, particularly on social media. So Renee, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of your work and I think you're covering so many interesting areas in this space. Um, within that very large uh, range that I've just set out, maybe I'll start kind of in the middle with uh, the here and now. You've written, our information ecosystem no longer assists us in reaching consensus. In fact, it structurally discourages it and instead facilitates a dissensus of bespoke pseudo-realities. You've even mentioned a Cambrian explosion of bubble realities. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of like to talk to you about that first and maybe even about the tension between that and your discussion of solutions, because it seems like we have such deep cultural divisions. We have such deep bubbles that forms of friction, like uh, you know, changing how things pop up in the newsfeed algorithm or slowing down viral information, is sort of spitting on the fire. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great critique. Um, so the the first essay that you um, that you quoted um, the mediating consent. So I had done a talk, Ribbon Farm is great. It's a community of people who think deeply about particular topics. And uh, Venkatesh Rao, the um, kind of uh, founder of the, the community, um, really encourages a lot of deep thinking, connecting things to historical time periods. And one of the things that I've really um, enjoyed in my you know, my friendship with him over the years is, uh, you know, he's kind of the first person to kick it back to you and be like, this is a lazy thought, you know, <laughs> go deeper on that. Um, 
and so what I've been thinking about a lot was we were, we were actually getting together in person. This was like in the before times and we were going to have like a little um, friend uh, kind of conclave. And I'd been reading a bunch of propaganda um, texts on propaganda dating back to the, um, the 1920s. And so I'd gone through Bernays and I'd gone through Lipman and I'd, uh, Elul, you know, just kind of reading about these moments in time because I was struck by the idea of propaganda evolving to fit the information architecture of the day. And my background is computer science and political science. So sometimes I feel like um, there are scholars who have studied these things for many, many, many years, but I am piecing together a curriculum uh, <laughs> based on interest. Um, trying to contextualize the things that we're seeing today. So my day-to-day my -day work is much more focused on the mechanics of misinformation campaigns, the mechanics of disinformation campaigns, uh, ways in which the technological architecture of the day is misused, ways in which the information systems um, that we engage with every day are perhaps you know, on, the, on the pathological side. And so it's important to me to, to feel that we, we return these things to a grounding and understanding that there have been major information shifts in the past, um, ways in which you know, the uh, broadcast dynamics changed, who you could reach one-to-one -one versus one-to-many, uh, the speed, the scale. You know, there, were, there were moments in time in which we had these kind of very pivotal shifts. And so going back and looking at the texts of the day to try to understand both, what did they, you know, what, what was the reception? What was the societal transformation that occurred? But also were there regulatory efforts that were made? Were there policy shifts? Were there design changes? Like what came about in response to those major technological shifts? And might we draw on those things uh, to better understand, you know, or, or to think about whether it's spitting on the fire or not, at least spitting, you know, <laughs> is there something we can do um, to mitigate the worst um, harms, if you will. And so a lot of what I was looking at at the time was um, the idea of pseudo events, um, which are, you know, moments that were moments that are made for consumption. Um, the kind of canonical example is a, a, a news conference announcing the opening of a hotel. And, you know, why is that newsworthy? Well, it's newsworthy because it's been covered. Um, it's newsworthy because it's been pushed to us. It's newsworthy because someone somewhere decided that we should pay attention to that thing. And what I've been struck by is the way in which that process of capturing attention has really been democratized. In the kind of the old texts on pseudo events, it's the media that's doing it because the media is the one that has the power. It has the infrastructure, the technological infrastructure. It has the broadcast infrastructure and it can kind of set an agenda. And now the technological transformation is that we all have that power. We all have that infrastructure and we all have that access. And so when you move from this kind of top down um, control of the creation and dissemination of a narrative to a democratization of that process, is there a point at which there are so many pseudo events, you know, every moment that everything that trends on Twitter, in a sense, um, where we're constantly chasing after them and it becomes an all immersive uh, experience for us in which it, you know, this is where I use the phrase pseudo reality, right? So the, the question was, have we reached a point where we've gone from the pseudo event, a thing that maybe we see occasionally on the nightly news, but you know, the rest of the time we're off doing other things um, to an immersive pseudo reality experience where our attention is constantly captured by these non moments that become moments um, because somebody decides, you know, <laughs> that this is the thing we should be outraged about and pay attention to. And so I was very interested in in that um, that that sort of structural dynamic. Oh, there's so much already there to unpack. And so I'm going to kind of just put a pin in one and, and follow it. This, these pseudo events, part of what's going on in many people's minds is that social media is, um, it's the lurid lights. Like it, it just grabs our attention in ways that it, I think this takes it a little too far, but some people say, well, it just, it short circuits people's brains. It's like addictive. And uh, it then, f what happens on social media sort of flows out from there. Um, so what I have found is that even people that I know who are not on social media are getting sucked into the bubbles that, get, that get created there. So I will get emails, uh, which now some politicians are calling organic communications. Um, I'll get emails from people who are not on social media and, and they're, they're from people who are smart and whom I respect. And I see them as promoting information to me that is bubble information. It's not well sourced. It's you know the sort of chain email information 
that uh, has no in indices of trustworthiness. And they've just, they've clearly been sucked in. And that's not to say that I'm not sucked in. I mean, I used to think that this talk of online manipulation was all about the other people. But I see it so much in these emails that I start to get annoyed and, and have knee-jerk reactions. And so the whole thing of what you're talking about, these pseudo-realities and the, the speed at which this information flows, it, it's almost like, to what degree is that going to shake our faith in the entire sort of enlightenment endeavor that we are humans with agency and we are rational and more information is better and the response to bad speech is more speech and, and that whole game. So one of the ways that I've thought about recently um, framing some of the this dynamic is um, is differentiating between algorithms, affordances, and agency, right? So when we talk about the algorithms, you know, which is a thing that is uh, that is often often discussed, and you know, and I've written about them for for years too, recommendation, curation, trending, things that you know that are used to capture our attention. Um, or to curate information for us or to suggest communities we might want to join, there are certain certain sort of um, ways in which I would argue that could be um, far better designed, far better implemented. And we can kind of talk about that maybe on the side. But then there's the affordances, which is the things that we are, you know, we, ha we are given the power to decide to share something. We are given that retweet button. We are given that like button. That's not an algorithm doing something to us. We are not the passive recipients at that point. We're somebody who chooses to hit that button and facilitate that share. And so there is this element of, um, of agency, right? Of the, you know, our, our uh, role as, as active actors and participants in the system. And one of the things that I found really interesting doing, so we did some work during the 2020 election. Um, monitoring for, for about 100 days prior to the election. And then, you know, the election didn't end in November. So this work kind of carried through through January. Um, but we were we narrowly scoped a project to look at voting related uh, mis and disinformation. So whatever candidate A said about candidate B, like that was outside of the scope of our stuff. We were focused on um, narratives related to fraud, narratives related to um, voter suppression, uh, you know, false claims sometimes. And we chose to do that because we felt that first we wanted to look at something where, again, there was this idea of harm. Like if, if you were misled about voting, um, you know, we were disenfranchised in some way, that was a, a harm. And so we chose to, to scope ourselves around this. And one of the things that was really remarkable was that there is this process that happens now where an ordinary person sees something and their inclination is to document it and to post it to social media. And one of the things that is really interesting is depending on what community they spend a lot of their time in, there's sort of a baseline assumption that comes from priming, that comes from this is the media that I see all day long, this is the social media that I see all day long. And we don't really differentiate between those two things anymore. We see social media and media as, you know, again, part of this holistic information environment. But what we would see during the election was there would be somebody who would see, um, say, a, you know, a ballot envelope um, in a dumpster. This is one, one example. And what they do is they photograph it. And you see this, this sort of immediate tagging in of people who can amplify that, right? And so here I've just found this. I, Renee, walking down the street, photograph this thing. And I, and I immediately tag in the people that I see as influencers, trusted, you know, people that I trust in the environment that I operate in. And... And one of the things that's really remarkable about it is you see this, this thing go from an incident, the influencers will pick it up and will really like shoehorn it into a narrative. They will be the ones who will assign this like, oh, that ballot on the street, that is evidence of fraud. And depending on if you're on the right or the left, the U.S. Postal Service is behind it all or the, you know. <laughs> or, well, as you uh, mentioned, you know. <laughs> there's often these elements of truth, uh, you know, when you right, discuss right. this. Right, you have that photograph. There that were ballot. ballots in yes. a ditch and this exactly. and that, but then it just gets turned into this entire story that is spun out from it. Right. And so it's immediately shoehorned into that narrative. The language and the tone changes. You can see this progression from sometimes it's genuine curiosity. What is this? But oftentimes it moves very rapidly into suspicion and accusation and then outright allegation that 
massive fraud has occurred. And so it is, it is processed as yet another piece of evidence to support this narrative that is the predominant belief within the community uh, that you are a member of. And so you have just found additional evidence to corroborate this theory. And then what you'll see in certain communities is the incident, you know, goes incident narrative and then immediately off to conspiracy theory. We also kind of break the our more traditional ways of sense making in that there, it is assumed that someone bad is doing something to us as opposed to, uh, you know, the mailman wasn't very careful. Well, and the other element in this that you've talked about that I think is really interesting is the degree to which um, everything you've just discussed then interacts with sort of the shortening of the attention span and the speed up of the social media sort of news cycle where there's then no follow up. Um, and it, it doesn't need to get it doesn't need to get fit into any kind of larger picture because the next day it's the next pseudo narrative and um, it, it, it's sort of like every element in this whole phenomenon is designed to create problems because then even when things do get debunked at the end of the day if you're seeking to spread disinformation uh, all you've done is created distrust in what's real and what's not so even when you get caught you succeed and and then when you do succeed, I mean, it's not like you really need to create something. Um, you don't need to prove that the moon is made of cheese. You just create a narrative out of this little tiny fact. And what you're doing is you're pushing at an open door because all you're doing is, is completing the narrative that your sort of faction already wants to believe and entrenching it. Um, so it all kind of ties into the discussion of these bubbles are, are just very entrenched. Well, and we would... One of the things that was really interesting to me was um, was the the dynamics around fact checking. And so, on you may remember election night, um, Arizona was called for Biden fairly early on, and by Fox News around nine, nine o'clock Pacific time, I think. And that led one of the things that was really remarkable about that was that there had been low level concerns about Sharpie markers. And, you know, if you're a certain age, as I am, you remember being told you don't bubble in a Scantron with a Sharpie marker, right? This is sort of conventional wisdom. But in certain locales, the, you know, or whatever the advances in um, ballot reading technology, you were given a Sharpie marker, you were told to bubble in your ballot with a Sharpie marker. And so again, you had this early process of sense making around that um, concern, people posting on social media, I was given a Sharpie, you know, is this a thing that, you know, that, that, is this okay? Um, I was watching that conversation happen on Parler, right? And on Parler, interestingly, you did see people legitimately in there trying to make sense of, is this Sharpie marker okay? But what you start to see is um, that conversation, once a certain, like once an influencer has shoehorned that, that conversation into an allegation of fraud, and particularly when the election all of a sudden in your state has just been called for the candidate you didn't vote for, all of a sudden that narrative about the Sharpie markers becomes the thing. Like that is the reason why Trump didn't win Arizona. And so they latch on to this, uh, you know, this, this Sharpie marker thing. Interestingly, as we were processing this after the fact, as we've been going through all of the data to piece together what appeared on what social platform and when, how that intersected with media, how that intersected with um, what we call top down versus bottom up, you know, what came from the news and went down, what came from the public and was eventually covered, uh, covered by the news. And so as we're, as we're looking at this dynamic, um, we start to find posts by Maricopa County government weighing in very early on saying intraday long before the election was called the sharpie markers are fine your votes are going to be counted here's where you can go to verify that that happened you see the secretary of state from arizona again saying the same thing so the preemptive debunking of what became sharpie gate had already happened in response to the early claims of sharpie marker fraud but it it doesn't resonate it doesn't make its way in because the community doesn't trust it and so when now all of a sudden we have this conspiracy theory about about sharpie markers that just blows up it goes viral you know there are uh, that night the night after election day there are protests uh, people waving sharpie markers and chanting stop the steal outside of this vote counting facility the next night it's a circus alex jones is there yelling with a bullhorn you know and at this point you know that that fact check it, it went out but it doesn't make its way in. It, it's not part, it doesn't become incorporated into the narrative because this, this progression, this combination of um, what people see, who people trust, 
when they come to a conclusion, how that conclusion fits a you know preconceived um, you know how that conclusion reads with what they think has happened with the you know relative to the outcome that has occurred, you really start to see the challenge of it's it, it's this is not a problem that we're going to fact check our way out of, and that is I think uh, you know actually very <laughs> for for those who you know you alluded to the enlightenment for the, for those who believe that the presentation of more information and and uh, you know appealing to people's sense of rationality. Uh, that, that we're just going to enlightenment our way, <laughs> a combination of enlightenment and like fact check our way out of this is, I think, um, unfortunately, not not what seems to be happening when we really dig into the dynamics of these specific incidents where we effectively have this dynamic as a case study. We have all this rich data around how did people decide that the Sharpie markers they were given led to massive election, you know, alleged election uh, fraud and theft and, and, you know, and, and how does that narrative of Sharpie gate then, then that, that whole thing, that whole massive, you know, multi-day um, kind of conspiracy theory that was floating around the internet got subsumed into stop the steal, right? It became one of, it, it became a narrative then within this huge umbrella of allegations that the election had been stolen. And that's where, even if you were outside of Arizona and you hadn't been given a Sharpie, here was, your flavor of stop the steal. Here was, you know, here was the fraud that had occurred in your district that would enable you to feel like you too, you know, had been disenfranchised and to generate that outrage that would continue to encourage you to perpetuate sharing of these claims that the election had been stolen. So I have about, well, I have like 15 questions, but there's about three things that in my mind that I really want to home in on at the moment. So um, first of all, you mentioned in, in one article the rumors about, say, um, the Spanish Armada, just sort of talking about how there have always been wild rumors. And if anything, there were ways in which in the past it was worse, because if it's just all word of mouth in a local village, um, it's very hard to um, get good information. Um, and the difference today maybe is just the speed, but at the end of the day, we might actually just be seeing something that is uh, an almost eternal thing and it's just we can it's much more visible now and i'd like to know if what you think of of to what degree should we just be a little more sanguine about like this is how it's always been and maybe like for 10 minutes like media unified around tv and that was a temporary thing and we need to have a bigger perspective that's one um number two if we're not going to fact check our way out of it, and I think that's probably right. I mean, we have these things where we're putting all this pressure on Facebook or whatever to, to give good information. We are at the point where a huge portion of the population doesn't trust. They don't trust Facebook as an authority. You put the, the this has been fact checked and that actually tells them not to trust it. Um, so what do we do? At least going back to my discussion of the rumors in the village, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying here there, but there used to be just clear sources of authority. If the bishop said it, you know, you had your religious authority, you had the, the monarchy, there were these clear authorities, and we don't have that anymore. So it's almost like the Middle Ages, we had authority, and then we went into this Enlightenment era where we had reason, and now we have neither reason nor authority. So how do we reestablish that? That's two. I'm sorry to pile these on you. And then three, I mean, I'm sorry, and I'm sure Baron will share this with me, but um, I don't know if this is temporary. Why is this such a right-wing thing right now? Why? What is up with that? Um, with the election, as you mentioned, the primary purveyors of right-wing, uh, sorry, of election misinformation, even before the election were right-wing. And, and maybe we need to put a pin in that and dive into that later a little more. But sorry to pile all that on you, but... No, there's a ton there. So one of the things on the question of more and different, I... I was interested in that question. So in 2015, I was really following the anti-vaccine movement very closely. And that was kind of how I got into paying attention to this space. I was really struck by um, ways in which relatively small groups of people could make themselves look a whole lot bigger. And whether if that meant that this all didn't matter because they were still ultimately small, right? So, you know, I was I was in California working on a, a bill to... Um, to eliminate vaccine opt-outs from schools, you know, something that I personally as a parent was very passionate about. And there were these small groups of people, um, you know, maybe maybe 10,000 or so, um, you know, who were really disproportionately able to 
steer the conversation by dominating share of voice. And so I started thinking about this through the concept of marketing, actually. So I was in startups at the time and I was running marketing, you know, <laughs> and so I was like, well, these are people running a marketing campaign. Propaganda is a marketing campaign for an idea. You know, this, this is what we've got. It's what we're dealing with here. So can we out market them? If they're just using affordances built for marketers, maybe we can grow a counter movement by using those same affordances ourselves. And so I was very interested in, I, I, I sort of felt like the playing field was fixed, right? In 2015, no social media company was going to come in and be like, yeah, we should probably do something about the anti-vaxxers. That was like way outside of the, you know, kind of whatever the Overton window equivalent for tech policy is, right? You know, and so or tech internal policy. And so I felt like, all right, we've got to grow a counter movement. So let's use these same tactics. Let's use these same techniques and let's just, let's just, let's just do it. Um, and that was where I started realizing that, that there were actually, this was where the, um, the algorithms kind of came in, in, in that um, Facebook had, had created a system, unfortunately, in which uh, through inadvertent, um, you know, sort of some inadvertent bad design choices, uh, they were, they would like the, the ad targeting tools at the time would be, gen you know, you could find categories that were generated by what most people put into their profile. ProPublica did a whole thing on this because unfortunately that meant that people who were putting like um, hate speech in their profile as their job would, you know, you could then target to jobs and the hate speech um, kind of content would would pop up. And the way that this was manifesting with anti-vaxxers was people would write like, you know, um, occupation like anti-vaccine warrior um, or, you know, and then you could go and you could actually add target to anti-vaccine warriors. Sort of the Petri dish era of right. misinformation. <laughs> yes. And, and of course there was nobody, you know, nobody was putting pro-vaccine warrior into their, you know, job description in their profile because there was just this asymmetry of passion. And that's always been there, right? There, there are always going to be these like passionate truth or communities who are out there spreading the gospel because they believe that, you know, that the truth is out there and, and the mainstream hasn't woken up or what have you. And so there is always that asymmetric, you know, kind of passion dynamic. But I was reading about this, trying to say, okay, so I see these people having a policy impact. I see this small group of people a fraction of the percent of the California population making themselves look so much larger by owning share of voice on social platforms. And does that mean that every policy fight going forward is going to be one of these marketing campaigns for an idea in which, um, you know, the, the kind of inadvertent structure of the system allows the small minority to really make themselves look like um, the dominant, you know, the, the dominant opinion. And I stumbled across this article that quoted Devin Nunes, and it said um, that you know, it was him commenting on conspiracy theories on the internet and, and remarking that as a politician, he used to hear maybe 10% from, you know, kind of wild crazies in his district um, asking him about, you know, fluoride and, you know, what have you, um, but it had shifted. And it was really now at this point, like 90% of the of the constituent communication that he was getting was from these conspiracy theorists. And, you know, and he was, this is, again, this is um, pre-Trump and pre whatever path Devin Nunes went down. Um, but this was the, um, this was when he kind of recognized that, that, that that was anomalous, that that was a problem. And so I thought that that was interesting just as a, you know, one anecdote, but um, this question of were the wild things that people were seeing online making their way into the offline discourse or making their way into the offline policy space? Because you may, you know, remember that a lot early on the question was really, well, this is all just social media. Um, can it can it really make a difference? And this gets to your question also of um, of you know reason and authority and where we are today. And there's this the thing that I've been really captivated by lately is actually the idea of the influencer. Like what is the influencer and what is the historical parallel to the influencer? And so I've been spending a lot of time kind of going down again, the random um, history books, <laughs> uh, trying to see like, what is, what is the parallel to, um, to influencers? Because I think that one of the interesting dynamics, again, if we use this metaphor of resetting the playing field, saying this is the environment that we're operating in, this is the new normal. So how do we, as um, you know, people who want to uh, amplify um, more accurate information, how do scientists or researchers or politicians or you know, how do other people participate in this space? And one thing that's really remarkable about influencers is that they are seen as very authentic. They're seen as um, being just like you or me. Um, people trust them. They 
begin to take guidance, you know, they, they really listen to them. Their brands recognize this again, speaking to the idea of this is like a marketing phenomenon. Brands use influencers now to, to run marketing campaigns because they know that there's a relationship of trust between the person and the audience. And oftentimes they amass very, very large audiences for the thing that they're known for. Um, but the trust relationship does, isn't limited to the thing that they're known for. And so, you know, we see this in tech sometimes, we kind of always have kind of made fun of it as like the tech guru who is an expert at startups with 4 million followers, then kind of weighs in on something that's like completely off to the side and maybe they're right, maybe they're not. But, um, but it's this, you know, this, um, the fact that that your opinion has clout at that point, regardless of what you're known for, and so this is where on the con- you know the work that we're doing right now, looking at the vaccine misinformation, a lot of it is coming not just from anti-vaccine activists. I think there's in a way a disproportionate focus on the actual diehard anti-vaccine activists. It's from people who are influencers in something like wellness or in mom, you know, momland or um, you know, cooking or wh- whatever, what have you, um, that then have an opinion and express their opinion. And they have more reach because of the uh, time that they've invested in building their brand and building those relationships than someone who would be an authority figure. And so it really becomes this interesting process by which the the influencer sees something and is struck by it and feels compelled to go on and share it with their audience, again, thinking that they're just helping the conversation. Um, But depending on what that thing is, it really can have a disproportionate impact on a community. Um, And it's, and that, that is where I, I feel like one of the things I've started tossing around lately is, is the question of, can you, should rather than teaching old storied institutions how to communicate in the modern era and trying to make the CDC's Twitter account look like, you know, Stakeums, like, is there a, a way to um, kind of like almost like pull that function out and, and have a network of, of influencers who are receiving the most up-to-date information possible, communicating it to their audiences instead. Again, this is influencer marketing. This is not a novel idea. It's just saying maybe in the environment that we live in, this is where we are today. And so we have to be rethinking those, um, you know, those, those channels of communication, those methods of communication to, you know, kind of meet the system where it is, while at the same time, <laughs> thinking about how we might be able to design it towards servicing better information in general. Yeah, I mean, let me cut to the sort of $10,000 question then, because you're talking about it, like, you're doing great work, like you're the best we've got as far as figuring out solutions here. And you're still sort of, uh, this is not you, this is just the the nature of the beast. You're looking at sort of now or like what was one step behind and and you well know what's coming one step down the pike. Um, And we're still, it's a struggle to keep up. So like, for instance, you write, given a prompt, GPT-3, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, it's an open AI, it's a generative text creator, as you say, it can produce any number of unique takes, which a person can quickly and easily polish and post. And your article's great about this. I love the fact that you acknowledge that little pieces of the article were made by AI. Um, So as you're here figuring out, um, okay, what's going on as influencers, we need to figure out these these people who are speaking with an authority that they their knowledge of a complex situation doesn't back up. And you're like, okay, here are our solutions. And coming down the pike is like AI generated text. I mean, it's crazy. So we've got this flood of of accelerating technology. And so then I connected back to our discussion, you know, the vernacular Bible comes out and people's brains just like explode for like a century. There is total uh, pandemonium in Europe. We end up having the 30 years war. They like kill a third of their population. It's insane. But over time, people sort of adjust. They, They figure it out. They learn to be more information literate. Uh, when it comes to reading, you know, don't just, um, well, in all kinds of ways, they learn to adapt to that information environment. So then the question is, I mean, can we keep up? Is this is this something where we are going to be in this state of perpetual upheaval? 
And as you're coming up with the solution to sort of the last thing, the next thing arises and like, can we adapt or or should we just sort of expect this sort of um, this like perpetual reformation from now on? It is interesting because, you know, it's the um, kind of the exponential speed of emergent new technologies, right? We have seen, I think, a, a more profound shift in in things that ordinary people have access to, you know, the ways in which uh, we use these tools every day. Um, On the generative text thing, one thing that was really interesting was the way in which generative video was rolled out. So you may remember deepfakes, the video of the video variety came first. And one thing that I thought was really interesting watching that dynamic was that media was covering it as it was being refined. So it wasn't that all of a sudden, you know, a bunch of people in academia were, you know, off kind of tinkering and then all of a sudden it was rolled out fully formed and then the media started covering it. It was that there were almost ways to convey to the public that this was coming, that that we had reached a point where you could make videos of people that were very convincing of them saying things that they had not actually said. And so it was almost like an inoculation into the fact that the technology was coming in a way in which, you know, people were told um, this is this is a thing that is coming. Now there's there's trade-offs to that, right? There's the um, you know the way in which that can make people overly skeptical that any video that they see, even if it is real, is really in fact a deep fake, you know, or that um, it it also provides a, a way for um, people who have been caught on video doing a bad thing to lie to their followers and say no 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 that was really a deep fake, right? And and we've seen that from. Uh, politicians in a couple places. So there is that dynamic, but at the same time, there's at least an awareness that, that these that these dynamics are in motion. Um, similarly, I think, you know, the idea of like the bots, right? Remember bots were a really big deal in, uh, <laughs> in 2015, 2016. Um, Twitter made a bunch of changes that mitigated in some ways that, you know, the kind of harms of that particular dynamic, that particular feature. Also raising It's been a while since on Twitter, I've seen like, you're a bot. No, you're a bot. Right. But there, there was like that moment where yeah. that was very much a part of the discourse. You're a Russian bot, you know. Um, and again, it was that, that same dynamic of like making people aware that there are manipulative people online, that they should be aware that this is a thing that happens. And then there was this overreaction period. And then now that that seems to have, um, per your point, come down a little bit. I think with the text piece, uh, again, it, it's going to be making people aware that this is a dynamic, this is a thing that happens. Honestly, a, one of the things that's very frustrating to me <laughs> is that just because you can predict something doesn't mean you can prevent it. The ways in which we know that this is going to be used, particularly like mass comment brigading on uh, areas where comment matters, people who are responsible for taking public comment should know that this is coming and should redesign their systems accordingly. And one of the interesting phenomenon um, that we saw is even in early kind of comment manipulation operations, you know, government agencies that were that are designed to take public comment that are responsible for reading public comment didn't even have captures on their websites right so you didn't even have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting to flood um to, to to flood the uh the interface you could you could actually submit comments via an api right maybe that's a thing that we don't need to do you know <laughs> i get why it exists i do but i think that again this is where we have to be thinking about trade-offs. Maybe people can just go and type their comment in. And if you are an activism organization, instead of telling people like click the button and we'll automatically transmit your comment, you say, hey, take the 30 seconds out of your day and go there and type it in. Right. There, there are ways in which, again, we can think about um, about about trade-offs here, but we should at least be having the conversation. I think with generative text, the thing that I find very interesting about it um, is that we do still, you know, the, a, a lot of people do still engage very much with um, with written content on the internet. And where I think it has the potential to be very interesting is I think that ultimately something is going to, to trigger a, a rethinking of identity on the internet. You know, what, what it means to be, uh, to, to, you know, to kind of validate that you're real. And one of the things that I think is interesting about text, you know, generative text is it has the potential to kind of usher in that era. Um, say this was, 
you know, this was written by a real person and here is this person. Not necessarily in a de-anonymization sense, maybe it's a persistent pseudonym, but, but I do think that there's something that's going to happen where if this is democratized, if the ability to flood the internet with made up comments that become very hard to detect, because a lot of the ways that we currently detect things like that is by uh, similarity in the, um, in the submitted text, right? And if you have AI generated text, that similarity, that just kind of cut and paste repurposing of the same comment, you know, permutations, right? If you actually have newly generated content, um, that detection, uh, you know, kind of mechanism uh, falls away. And so I think that there is something interesting to be said for how do we, how do we think about, uh, I, or like how do we think about identity and authenticity in an era in which content can increasingly be created by machines. And that is one of the, I think, kind of um, pivotal things that we're going to see maybe in the next three to five years as this becomes more of a, more of a again, democratized, widely accessible tool. Well, I don't want to get all like transhumanist, but yeah, maybe, maybe it'll, it'll melt a bit um, in terms of, of your conception of yourself as a, as a sort of blood and flesh person out in the world and your online identity. I mean, which actually ties into to the next thing I want to ask, because I'd say, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I was much more of the attitude of, um, you know, like, let's just lean in, like, this is going to be awesome. Um, we, we, we're just going to embrace AI. We're going to embrace the fracturing of realities. It's going to be cool. Like we're going to, you know, some people are just going to be in virtual realities. Uh, we're going to get comfortable with just hyper skepticism about information. Uh, it, 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 there's going to be all these new voices. Not all of them are even going to be human. We're going to have AI generated ideas. It's going to be great, was my attitude maybe a year ago. Um, and although I'd still like to cling to that, uh, I'd say recent events, um, some of which happened in January, have, have shaken my, my faith in everything I just said. Um, as we see... Um, more and more and more. You'd mentioned how there was this era where it was like, well, does social media really have a real world effect? And then there was Comet Ping Pong Pizza and, and this and that and the other. And then we had January 6th. And it's like, well, you know what? If you let people go off into their fractured realities that I just described, maybe it's not so awesome. Um, and so to tie it again back to sort of politics, I was wondering if you could talk more about your Atlantic article on um, the disinformation campaign in the election. And um, if I could just bounce everything I just said off you and, and hear what you think. So, yeah, the we had, again, we had scoped our project looking at the election, really very focused on voting related misinformation. So, um, so the one thing that we saw over and over again, again, was this process of we called kind of bottom-up creation, um, where for a long time people had been very concerned about like Fox News and you know Fox News communicating this information to people and people are passively receiving it and then taking you know and then internalizing it. But what we saw was now we were at this interesting point where regardless of how they had gotten there, they were at this point where again, if you took a photo, you know, if you saw a photo of a ballot in a ditch the assumption was was you know, sort of immediately left leapt to massive fraud and conspiracy and more evidence of massive fraud and conspiracy. And the events of, of January 6th were, you know, not all of those people had gotten there in quite the same way. There were some who had been immersed in QAnon for a very, very, very long period of time. And again, saw this as an opportunity, like this was them being called by their leader to, you know, to come and take action. And so there was that. And then there were the militia types and the people who have always, you know, there's always been a, a kind of um, set of underground communities, like, you know, agitating for the overthrow of the US government, you know, so they had their own sort of ulterior motives. But what was really remarkable was the, the communities of people who were largely ordinary people and who had just, you know, they weren't QAnon, they weren't militia. They were people who had been who had been receiving this information for months and had been told that there had been fraud, that the election had been stolen. They were, they were not presented with any evidence, but there was a lot of insinuation. There was a lot of like big if true kind of dynamics. And 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 the thing that really struck me about that dynamic, watching the, you know, I was watching the footage as it played out on, on January 6th. 
was the um, the live streams, right? Because we have live streams now. <laughs> you don't even have to wait for the media to make sense of it. I was watching RT's live stream. I was watching Russian state media uh, there with a live stream as the US Capitol was being breached. And I was like, this is a really interesting conflation of, of a lot of different things that I pay attention to. Um, but what was remarkable about it was the the conviction, I mean, these were these were sincerely held beliefs at this point because they had been reinforced over and over and over again. I think that, you know, we know that that there is that repetition matters, we know that availability matters. And social media, in many ways, the repetition and the availability, if you're in a particular echo chamber, the repetition is happening. If you open up your feed, you know, the first post that's pushed to you, the availability is there. You know, this is what this is just what you see. And Facebook, there was this thing that came out that was leaked a little bit. Um, it was leaked to, I think, BuzzFeed, and it was maybe a month ago now. And it was really revealing because it showed that Facebook internally was watching this because, you know, many people within tech companies knew that the election was going to be a high value target and were watching for particular types of manipulation, foreign state media, domestic incentivized actors, you know, ways in which mis and disinformation might, um, might impact the election. And what they saw was the... Um, the kind of springing up of these groups, and they were trying to decide if this, con if Stop the Steal constituted a cohesive movement, and if so, then they could act on it because they had a policy for that. But since it was springing up and it looked organic, they, they, they didn't quite know what to do. They didn't have a, a framework for that. And I, I was really struck by the again, even though we had, you know, researchers, platforms, governments, you know, government agencies had kind of red teamed out worst case scenarios just because anybody we could predict it didn't mean that we were actually able to prevent it there there was not um really a rubric for you know for, for them to decide what to do with this stuff as it was happening because it touched on those really challenging lines between free expression and networked activism and organization um you know there were they were trying to they were kind of playing whack-a-mole with um groups that would occasionally start to tend toward violent speech. But again, people say things on the internet all the time. And so there was a question of how seriously should they take these claims, you know, these, these exhortations, um, you know, we need to start yeah, the mean, building. You know. To and, jump in with a left-wing example, I, I see, you know, um, online, a hard, I, we are communists and they, they'll do like an online poll, like, would you send your parents to the gulag? And it's like, yeah. what, what do you do with that? How seriously I mean, do you take that? Right. And, and, I, and I think that it's, you know, it's it's online rhetoric, bravado, trolling culture, you know, and, and getting from there to, um, you know, to, to what was going to happen on January 6th, I think was uh, was something where, I, you know, I, I think that, that that'll be taken a whole lot more seriously um, going forward. But it was really the, the, the kind of confloration of like all of these different groups of people that arrived at this, you know, that arrived there at the same time with distinct motivations, but they'd all been subject to hearing repeatedly over and over and over again that their votes had been stolen, that the election had been stolen, and that they needed to do something about it. And it's the, it's the do something about it that I think is, is interesting because a lot of the appeal of these online communities, whether it was anti-vaxxers in 2015 or QAnon in 2018 or you know um, whatever the next thing come down the pike is, is that people are looking for that community and they're looking to be part of something and they're looking for that, you know, in many ways, excitement and, and the spaces that they're participating in, the sort of perpetual online factions fighting, you know, <laughs> digital warfare on Twitter, um, eventually some of them, it seems, uh, you know, do in fact cross the line and, and go and, and, take, uh, and take action in the real world as a, you know, in, in a very coordinated way. Um, I wish I you know, I think the person to to really kind of talk to about the um, the differences between the right wing media and the left wing media ecosystem around this um, is Yochai Benkler. Still, it's his, his book Network Propaganda. If you want to think about it from the media ecosystem, we were seeing social media, which so which is to say, just people sense making in communities and coming to certain conclusions. But the other piece of this is that there is this feedback loop that happens with hyperpartisan media. And for example, when there was a uh, when there was a conversation on Twitter about ballots in a dumpster, right? You could argue that Twitter is not the entirety of social media and you know, relatively small percentage of the population is on Twitter versus Facebook. Um, 
But what was happening was like Gateway Pundit was following the Twitter conversation and then they would kind of like pull the narrative up from the bottom. So they would literally write four sentences and just embed the tweet and the and big if true, you know, ballots and dumpster. And then, um, by the way, the U.S. Postal Service supports Joe, endorsed Joe Biden, the USPS union endorsed Joe Biden. As we literally said, like four sentences, four sentences. That are true yes, then, yeah, <laughs> it is true. In bigger. fact, that that endorsement did go to Biden. But but so so it's constructed as literally four sentences. Um, but what happens once you have that is then you have a hyperpartisan media that has said this thing and they're going to post it to Facebook and their audience on Facebook is going to get it. And the people who go to gatewaypundit.com are going to get it. And the people who subscribe to the email newsletter are going to get it. And so that's how you start to see this process um, go from being a small internet fever swamp theory uh, to being something that is, you know, kind of um, blown up and carried along the way with the the influencers and the hyperpartisan media uh, sort of serving as that that transit point that gets it out of whatever platform it originated on, gives it a URL, so it becomes kind of like a pervasive, you know, the, the content is assigned like an identifier, you know, <laughs> and then and then it kind of goes from there. And I think that so Yokai Benkler's uh, sort of thesis on this this propaganda feedback loop is that first the right-wing media just has better conduits like this pathway is much more established and so they have it to draw on and so they draw on it time and time again um the other thing that was interesting is that the left-leaning you know his argument is that the the left-leaning clusters have more proximity to the clusters in the center where there is still a sense of accountability and responsibility and like and like an idea of, of journalistic principles uh, guiding that and so that there is more of an inclination for people to say stop this is nonsense the stories don't survive as long um, but on the right um, what he has observed in his research that happens is that there's going to be somebody with high impact whether it's Sean Hannity or uh, Breitbart or, or someone that will pick up even the most wild claim and will reframe it or will present it as big if true, have the conversation, of course, we should consider this idea, or they'll actually identify it as true, and then everyone will start circulating it. So instead of the stop the story is nonsense check, you get instead this, um, well, we should all be talking about this and not talking about it as a form of censorship, in fact. And so uh, we can circulate the idea and have the conversation. And that's where you get, again, that repetition and that availability. R R Renee, I, I read Yokai's book with great interest, and I, I particularly take to heart his his story of the way in which the, that interplay between traditional media, especially cable news and social media works, and that there there is a radicalizing effect there. And in particular, he describes how uh, Breitbart's very close engagement with the internet uh, made them very successful, and that in turn uh, pulled Fox News uh, much, much further into the uh, the fever swamps back in 2016. Do you have a way of, of, of answering the question that people always ask of how much of the problem is, uh, is traditional media, is cable news versus the internet? I don't. We, you know, that is, that is, I feel one of the areas where we just don't have as much visibility, me personally, in the, in the work that I do. And where we see television or broadcast media, cable news, intersect with the, the narratives and the things that we're looking at is, again, when it's turned into clips, right? When the content is kind of collateralized, given a URL, and then, uh, and then we, can see that, we can see that URL spread. So I know that there are plenty of research teams that are looking exact, you know, that, that are looking at that question. We see it as, you know, right now we've seen tons and tons of Tucker Carlson clips making their way into our vaccine hesitancy um, communities because Tucker Carlson has had a lot to say about Anthony Fauci and masks and vaccines and so on and so forth. And so um, so we see again, we see broadcast being being shared, uh, you know, being shared down into these communities. And we can see also um, in certain you know guests that he brings on, he is bringing on somebody who was the main character of Twitter for a day or you know had a thing that was big on social media. So we can see that back and forth, but we're not doing quite as much. Um, the, the, the question of where did the person see the thing that tipped them into a belief is, I think, very, very challenging. And this is one of the reasons why the debate about social media versus broadcast media persists in that I think we're looking for a way to quantify that. Oh, social media is not the problem because they heard that wild claim about vaccines from Tucker when they actually watched his television show versus um, 
oh, that wild claim about vaccines came because they spent too much time on Facebook. So, so in a way, I think that the, the dynamics are interesting. Um, the dynamics merit further research. Ultimately, though, I think there is still, again, this is the, the time horizon question, or maybe it's that at, um, at SIO, we're trying to do a little more of the, um, can we surface these claims to enable the countering to reach people faster, to enable the fact-checking to penetrate certain communities. So a little bit less of the, what was the thing that tipped someone into an idea? I think that the, the again, the repetition and availability dynamics suggests that there isn't any one pivotal moment. Uh, it, it becomes much more of a, um, immersion in a space and aggregate over time. And so maybe the question of was it Fox or was it uh, social media? I think it's an interesting question. I think also the other thing I'll, I'll say on this is um, generationally, I think that that's different too. We see a lot of people who are right now, um, you know, on TikTok, right? And they're, they're, they don't turn on TVs. They don't have TVs. I don't have a TV. Um, and so I think that that dynamic of cable news versus internet is going to shift as we have digital natives almost exclusively on the internet who don't have television, don't have cable news. And the only way that they see these things are when the clips come down and, and you know land on social media. But ultimately this is why you do see the rise of these um, kind of internet first media properties that, you know, that are catering to the dynamics of, of that audience, um, which is gonna be the audience that continues to grow. You mentioned the SIO, the Stanford uh, Internet Observatory. And, and your mission in a nutshell is, is what? We look at the abuse of current information technologies. Uh, so this is why we look at GPT-3 and how does that, you know, how does, how does emergent technology transform the playing field? How is the playing field um, misused in systemic ways by particular types of actors, be they state actors or spammers or, you know, incentivized uh, domestic communities? Um, so we're just looking at the internet as a communication space and these you know, the dynamics of how it, um, how narratives spread, how information moves and how that changes as, uh, as new technologies and apps come into the space. One more question before Corbin takes over again. I, I hear you and everything you've said about the interplay between social media and cable news. So at the end of the day, do you think that there's a difference, if not in where the influence is coming from between cable and social media in terms of how those companies are are handling this. I mean, it seems to me that Fox has an, 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 an OANN and Newsmax even more so have an incentive to turn the dial up all the time on the outrage machine, whereas social media uh, are actually fighting the abuse of their platforms. Maybe not enough, but they, they, their advertisers don't want their products uh, associated with denying the reality of the election or hate speech or whatever. So however imperfectly, social media are trying to moderate this kind of content. Uh, do, do, do you see these these companies, traditional media like cable and social media being different, at least in that respect? I think with social media in particular, the massive public outcry following um, a sense that you know, that fake news had been significantly impactful in 2016, regardless of whether that actually was true. That was very much the public perception. Um, really did move, it really really did move the needle for, for the platform companies, I think, in terms of um, thinking about where, you know, what responsibility they, they bore for, uh, you know, for what was being hosted and surfaced uh, on their platform. And I think that that's been subsequently refined to recognize that the proactive curation dynamic in particular was really impactful and really um, had tons of unintended consequences. I mean, unfortunately that's pretty consistently in the documents that have leaked internally uh, from, from, internal, uh, from internal stats was recognition that the recommendation engine was in fact, you know, that, that people who were joining more extreme groups were doing so because they engaged with the groups and recommendations. I think it was something like 64% of people who had joined a, a more extreme community had done so because the recommendation engine had had surfaced it, had prompted, you know, had prompted them and then they had joined. And so I think that that kind of measurement and then public, you know, demands from the public for accountability um, have put them much more into this uh, this environment where there's a recognition that um, the status quo, the kind of early days were not great and that a lot needs to be done to um, 
you know, to improve the system and to, uh, you know, to, to make sure that, that unintended consequences, you know, don't, don't continue to, to nudge people down rabbit holes. Um, I think because you know, that, that dynamic hasn't really happened quite so much in calls for accountability from cable media. One thing that's been interesting that we've seen post-election is OANN and Newsmax getting sued by people and then walking back some of the wild claims that they made about election theft because of lawsuits. So a different kind of dynamic happening there. Uh, again, it's this stuff happens so far after the fact that it's not clear that it's really, you know, it's it's good to see that they're that they're having to, you know, walk back the ridiculous false claims that they were putting on TV. Um, but that's happening months, you know, months later. So Renee, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I think I'm going to try and drill down um, on this last question. So we've, we've kind of done 10,000 foot philosophical stuff. And, and um, let's let's just talk sort of concrete next steps with the social media architecture. So you've mentioned, for one thing, you mentioned that that maybe um, we're having more problems at this particular moment in time with with misinformation on the right, because there's more people pushing back in the center and more interaction between the left and the center, um, which might actually suggest that there that people should be kept in the fold, that there is actually an argument for keeping extremists on mainstream platforms uh, to ensure that we don't get a increasing distillation of extremism and increase the echo chamber. So that's one thought. The second thought is, as, as you're well aware, the technology just sort of heading on its natural course is, is enabling decentralization and, and end-to-end encryption. Um, we're heading towards technology that is immune to any moderation, really, whether we like it or not. Um, so we could end up with a, a more decentralized network where uh, fringe groups are, their speech cannot be suppressed, but at least they'll probably have less reach. Um, so we have these sort of possible futures in, in just the concrete sort of next step, you know, the, the five-year vision of where social media is headed. Do you have a vision for what you'd like to see the social media architecture to look like as we head into that next stage? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I And we do see there's kind of trade-offs, right? Um, reducing visibility or deplatforming um, means that you move certain communities off of major platforms. And usually the people who persist, who continue are the people who are most entrenched. So that seems to be where, and I don't do research on deplatforming, but uh, in the papers that I've read, that seems to be the dynamic that happens. So somebody gets booted off of a, um, booted off of a platform and then they go and they try to reconstitute their audience, usually somewhere smaller, oftentimes Telegram, um, where again, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. When Parler um, when Parler got booted by Apple and Amazon and um, in the days after January 6th, one of the things that happened was the creation of a whole lot of Telegram channels by people who had been influential on Parler. Interestingly, um, they did not seem to grow very large. And that's because the experience on Telegram was not great. It's it's like a like a long chat. It it doesn't read like you know a post with threaded you no know, nicely threaded comments. And so the user experience. I mean, it really is like the user experience matters. I know that we talk about not wanting to like tech our way out of this, but at, at the the reality is that people want to engage in you know with con- certain content in certain ways. And if if you all of a sudden when that uh, it's it's not so much the idea of parlor as like the way in which the conversation flowed. Same thing with Twitter. Same thing with Facebook versus um, being put into Telegram, which is like a mass chat and it's chaotic and it's too hard to follow and nobody really stays. So there is a, so there's something to be said for both the structure the infrastructure and then also the availability of the audience. Um, I do think that there are going to be niche spaces that are gonna to continue to develop for certain people who want to have um, conversations that platforms have decided are uh, you know, not, not something that they're, you know, things that violate the terms of service for whatever reason. Um, we saw, you know, MeWe was around in 2015 and when anti-vaxxers would periodically get 
um, kicked off of Facebook for some violation or another, which very, very, very rarely happened, but they were always afraid of it. They would have these backup groups on MeWe, but there was really not a whole lot of growth or activity that happened there. And since it wasn't, again, availability and repetition, um, people were still going to Facebook to see their baby pictures, their friends, and so on and so forth. And they, when the more um, radical groups or communities are taken out of there, they're still kind of going to those places to connect with people that they know. And so there is, for some people who are not diehards, um, what seems to happen is that, that uh, the appeal of the more extreme communities dissipates when it's not constantly being pushed, uh, you know, pushed proactively at them every time they open the app that they're going to go to anyway. So what that means, though, is that the people who do persist oftentimes are much more entrenched, much more kind of diehard. And that's where people get concerned about um, radicalization happening within those those smaller groups and communities outside of the visibility of, um, you know, of moderation. I, I don't have a, a crystal ball on this one, because I, I think that the question becomes, is there an, you know, can we see the emergence of a new, very, very large network? The answer is quite clearly yes. I mean, TikTok showed us that, right? And that's because it created a enjoyable user experience and gave people a reason to go. Like they wanted to do that thing. They wanted to make those videos, do the duets, do the, you know, the the whole dynamic of TikTok. It sea made shanties. it fun. I love the sea shanties. My nine month old is like obsessed with the. Uh, <laughs> she like bounces to sea shanties. You know, it's great. Um, cooking ASMR, like what have you. I mean, it's just such a fascinating, you know, collection of, uh, of, of stuff that comes out of there. Um, and it did grow massive and that's because it, you know, design and user experience and the presence of people that you wanted to engage with made it an appealing thing for people to go back to. So I think that we haven't seen a whole lot of, um, of that dynamic of made it an appealing place to go to from some of these more niche communities. And, and so I think it does seem like the um, efforts to remove extreme groups from recommendations, efforts to, uh, you know, to very, very significantly throttle their distribution um, or to ultimately take them down do have an impact in, in reducing their reach and prevalence and growth over time. We'll have to keep watching that. Um... Renee, it's been a huge honor to have you, and thank you so much for your time. Um, as I hope has come through, I, I'm just such a massive fan, and I'll be continuing to watch your work. And I very much encourage all of our listeners to do the same. Um, if you if you want to know what's going on in all of this stuff, um, watch watch Renee's work. She appears often in the Atlantic and and Wired. And if you want to tell us of any other further projects or work you have coming up uh, that you'd like to highlight, please. That's pretty much where I am these days. Um, we're doing a lot of work on what's called the Virality Project. And uh, and then the rest of my work is at um, Stanford Internet Observatory. Um, we have an amazing team and we look at a whole bunch of different areas there and that's io.stanford.edu. Thank you, Renee. I'm Corbin Barthold. I've been joined as well by Baron Soka. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.